out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge, standing in for Mary Woods. Uh, Mary does some of the interviews. I do some of the interviews. And I wanted to do this interview, so here I am. Um, because I have Mary Olson. Hi, Mary. Hello. Now, Mary's been with us before on a previous show, but we we were at a conference talking about open dialogues, which is what Mary's going to talk to us about today, primarily, um, down in um, the Vallecitos Ranch in New Mexico, which was fantastic, um, although off the grid, which was shook us to the core. Um, and... Um, on our way back, we're like, you know, we should redo that because I've got a much better understanding of it, and we didn't feel we did. Um, we talked more about history, so we're back for another opportunity. So Mary, um, Mary's an international lecturer in the fields of communication and family therapy. Um, you're an adjunct associate professor at Smith College School for Social Work and affiliated with the University of Massachusetts. Um, Memorial Medical School. In 2001, Mary was a Fulbright professor in the Department of Psychology, Psychology at the University of... Fill in the gap here. Yvaskala. Thank you, Yvaskala. And has been um, a visiting professor at other universities in Finland, Italy, and the U.S. And um, has been the director of clinical externships in systemic family therapy in the Berkshire Medical Center. So Mary's talked a lot about and written about the open dialogues approach and has started a independent psychotherapy and consultation practice and training institute at the Mill River Institute in Haydenville, Mass. So, um, Mary, hi. Hi. Um, so, why don't we just start off talking a little bit about what open dialogues is and how it fits in. Now, I know you do a lot more than open dialogues communication, family therapy, systemic therapies in general. So um, don't feel that we just have to restrict this to open dialogues. Let's talk a bit about um, open dialogues, but in the context of the other family therapies that you do, perhaps. Okay. Well, open dialogue is a language-based, network-based approach to severe psychiatric crises. Mm -hmm. And it integrates different psychotherapeutic traditions, but its main starting point was family therapy, particularly systemic family therapy. Right. So, so, you know, there's been this long tradition of using family therapies for um, psychosis 
way back when, in fact, at the birth of family therapy, and we spoke about this in our um, last interview, um, and um, so this has really been applied in the open dialogues approach. How can we draw in the family to improve communication and to help some of the um, snares and binds and miscommunication that can be so confusing to somebody in a psychotic state or in an extreme state? There's also the whole network piece, which fits very well with the Lapland culture, um, which um, seems to me to be much more community-based and drawing in um, a lot more community resources than we have here. That's correct. So Open Dialogue is started, and the research is about Open Dialogue as a crisis intervention model. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to kind of give an overview? Yeah, of you better. Go ahead simple overview. So in Finland, um, they have a different mental health system than we have here. So they have a comprehensive and integrated system. And if there's a severe crisis, someone in the family will call the crisis team, and there's what's called a treatment meeting that is set up within 24 hours of the initial contact And everybody who is connected with the crisis comes to that meeting, as well as any professionals who are involved with the family and representatives of different parts of the hospital that might be needed in the crisis. So if the crisis, if the crisis worker thinks that this person might need to be in a secure setting for a while, then they would ask a nurse to come from the inpatient unit. So everyone is brought together at the beginning. It's a case-specific crisis. And then that team becomes your team for the duration of the crisis. And a severe psychiatric crisis, you know, is, they're very variable. They could, they could last six weeks or they could last two or three years. But that team that comes together within the first 24 hours becomes your team. And so there's this continuity of people who were involved with you from the beginning. Right, and this psychiatric crisis or extreme um, psychological state may or may not be a um, first psychotic episode or a psychotic episode. Um, It could just be any intense emotional crisis that might otherwise bring an individual here to the emergency room. Exactly, yes. The research on open dialogue was done with first episode psychosis, but in fact, they used this approach with all crises that would come to a crisis team. Yeah. Okay. So um, when you so and, and as you say, it can be short or long term, but it involves many of the different players in someone's life: their family, important supports and the treatment team. And in, in Finland, it often used the primary care physician who would be the conduit to call for this consult in the first place, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, um, another key element of open dialogues is that it's um, less authoritarian, less, um, less authoritarian, I, I, I'll say, than um, perhaps um, typical Western psychiatric models or American psychiatric models. So here, you know, you come to the expert, and the expert says, 
you know, this is what you should do, and this is the diagnosis, and this is the kind of treatment, and the family and the um, participant is often more passive. Um, I think there's a tradition of uh, getting away from that in family therapy generally, um, but especially in the Finnish model, right? Uh, so can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Well, there's the idea of tolerating uncertainty, and there's the idea of trying to find out what the crisis means to the person at the center of concern and to the other participants in the network. So as you've described, the clinicians actually don't go in with a predetermined idea of the crisis. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to have a conversation in ordinary language that can help the person at the center of the crisis express what their concerns are and develop a common understanding. And one of the ideas is that often a crisis is idiosyncratic and it doesn't fit into our pre-existing categories. So there's a very open-minded quality to this approach. It doesn't cancel out expertise. All decisions about medication and hospitalization are made within the treatment meeting. One of the differences is that they're made openly with the person and the family present. And the person and the family actually can witness disagreements among professionals, which tends to change the perception of their single authority. When you can witness professionals having a conversation, disagreeing, coming to conclusions, it makes them more human. Mm -hmm. And I think also what changes is the fact that there's an emphasis on legitimizing every voice. So that also changes the power arrangements because everyone has a legitimate point of view. There's an idea of multiple voices and not just the single voice of the authority. The Finns would say that the doctor is not the single authority. Rather, the conversation tends to author the result rather than a single dominant perspective, if that makes sense. Well, it does because I spent four days, you know, talking to you about it. But yes. it's tricky. So it, And it's so different. Um, so, and this goes back to your early point about understanding meaning is understood by the network. Um, so you're not going in with a a priori idea that there's a... When you hear... If I hear a case over the phone, I'll be like, I, I might be tending to think, oh, there's a psychotic state, and I'll be thinking, you know, what's the family history and what's the immediate stressor, blah, blah, blah. But in this circumstance, they go in a little bit more um, naive um, in a good way or open-minded, and you're saying that they allow the meaning to emerge from um, the shared, from the conversation um, in amongst the participants. Yes. So there may be a particular, words might have a particular meaning within that family context, and we wouldn't notice as experts coming from without. But if you listen and allow and allow the multiplicity of voices, the, the numerous voices and the, and the dialogue to emerge, um, then you can allow the, then that meaning um, surfaces and can be 
figured out within the network, right? For example, yeah. I sat in on a uh, an open dialogue meeting that we did here in the United States with Yaku Sekula, who's one of the main developers of this approach, and his colleague, Tapio Salo, both of whom worked at Karaputis Hospital where Open Dialogue was originally developed. Yeah. And Karaputis Hospital is in the northwest tip of Finland. So they were visiting, and we were sitting in a meeting. And we had been invited to participate in a treatment meeting around a young man who was well on his way to becoming a chronic patient. Mm-hmm. And he had some very severe problems. He had been in and out of hospitals multiple times. He was on many medications, although the nurse prescriber who was there was trying to distill his medications down to the essential medications and get him off things that might not be so helpful. And the process of of lowering his medication was actually quite helpful to him. Mm -hmm. Be that as it may, when we heard about this young man, there's certain automatic ideas you have. Certain diagnoses may come to mind, although there was a lot of disagreement, if I remember correctly, about what his diagnosis was. And he'd gotten different diagnoses at different points. Which typically happens anyway. Which typically happens. So the idea that a diagnosis brings clarity is certainly not not always the case. Yeah, that's right. And so long story short, we went in and we met actually with this young man and his mother. And very soon into the meeting, his mother choked up and became tearful. And she started talking, and then she stopped, and then I asked her what the tears were about, and then, are we, do we need to break? That's our cue. Okay. We have to break in a sec, but I hate breaking in the middle of a good story. Okay. But we have to. We'll have to come back after the short break. Okay. Okay. to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. 
For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Okay, welcome back. It's Mark Green. I'm with Mary Olson. Um, Mary, let's set the scene again. You uh, were doing a consultation. Someone had come in. He'd had a very long, difficult history, multiple hospitalizations, lots of diagnoses, which, as you say, really clarify much. Um, And and then his mum starts crying, um, and he brought her back to the tears. Yes. So we asked about what the tears were about, I asked about what the tears were about, and and she began to talk about this really horrendous divorce that she had been through and describing the history of the family. And there had been multiple court cases and custody battles, violence. um, And what happened was the conversation no longer became about what was wrong with this young man, mm-hmm. but it became about the history of this family and his position in it. Yeah. And the Yako asked him questions that I think really helped him to clarify his position within this family. And that seemed to me actually to be quite useful. Also, the therapist that was working with him told me after the meeting that hearing what his life had been like, because he hadn't been speaking about these things, helped her to feel more connected to him and actually less fearful about his behavior. I went back... So in that interaction, you took the lens off him as the identified patient... Um, where all eyes were on him and his problems, and really put him back in a context where he, um, of a family which had been struggling and gave, gave an opportunity for someone to really feel some compassion for the very human struggles he'd had it, in that yes. family. Yeah. And, and actually, we didn't have to do that much because all we needed to do is let the mother tell her story. Mm-hmm. And that 
humanized him and and gave us a context so he was no longer just an individual but he was a person in a context and once you understood the context it was easy to see why he behaved the way he did there was a you know tremendous battle between the parents the father exhibited some of the behaviors and he himself had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and the son seemed to be exhibiting some of the same behaviors long story short it there were all these other changes too in how he was being perceived within his treatment system and his network and in particular the therapist said that she no longer felt afraid of him when i went back to interview this young man and his mother nine months later, there had been all these changes that had occurred since that meeting, which were quite impressive. He went back to school, and I'm not just saying it was this meeting, but I think that there were ripple effects that allowed the therapist to work differently with him and to set a different trajectory in motion. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, the wonderful thing about family therapy, I think, is that if you've got lots of cogs in the system, you don't have to just hammer away at one. You can, you can make another one shift quite distant, and you still get all of the different machinery uh, flowing differently. And that's what you're describing, right? You know, just taking the lens out, taking the pressure, taking, um, putting the problem in a... In fact, he sort of stopped asking what is his issue and what's his disease. And um, he said, what's going on with this whole system and the the family in it? Shifted the focus, probably gave him an opportunity to see his mum's suffering in a way which he hadn't before. Um, And one of the special things in the open dialogues approach, um, I think, is that, as you say, they've got this reflecting team, um, which we'll say something about. But the focus can really be on the mother and the um, identified patient or this, this guy can be helpful or observing of people helping his mother, which changes his relationship with his mum, right? I mean, yes. everything can shift around. Yes. And there also seemed to be one turning point where Yako asked this young man, mm. what would your father say if he were here listening to our conversation and the young man responded by saying by really thinking about this question and then saying I want my parents to be separate now I don't know if I'm attributing too much to this but this seemed to really have a lot of weight to it and it was in direct contrast to Uh, really how the mother was interacting because the mother really wanted to know a lot about what was going on between this son and the father. And it seemed to me to be the emergence of his voice and his, uh, his will and his desires in the situation, which is not something that we tend to cultivate if we make people very passive recipients of diagnosis. Great point. And I, this, is, this, 
the teetering on the edge of getting um, theoretical, and it's so important that we've got to find a way to make it sensible. What you're saying is some in psychotic states um, and in mental illness uh, in general, that almost the label, but also the process of psychosis perhaps, means that it's very difficult for someone's um, opinions or desires to really be clear. They're right. sort of written off or they're silenced in some way. And right. one of the special things and amazing things that can happen in open dialogues um, in, by some mysterious force of not going in with a set agenda, perhaps, um, is that people can really start articulating what it is they want and what it is that they um, are perceiving. And it's really, it's really heard for the first time. Um, and they don't sound mad. They sound reasonable, logical, and it, maybe because it has this meaning within the communication that's going on with the family. Yes, I would agree with that. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. There are a lot of case studies that show that voice, uh, which means one's own personal perspective, and agency, which means having some influence over your life and your destiny, mm-hmm. that, that new experiences, fuller experiences of voice and agency seem to be extremely therapeutic and seem to be associated with positive outcomes in any, any number of psychological and psychiatric problems. Absolutely. It correlates very well with, say, recovery rates from addiction. You know, that's the whole, there's a whole theory, a whole therapy of, you know, motivational interviewing, um, which helps people articulate their own um, desires and really own, take ownership and increase their autonomy um, for, uh, for positive change processes. Yes, and this an open dialogue is congruent with that. It's consistent with that. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think, what you said before is really important to underscore. You made the comment that going in without an agenda seems to allow people more freedom in terms of their own expression. Right. That's right. So um, really resisting that urge to, to foreclose decisions um, you know, say the doctor looking for treatment or ever all eyes upon the identified patient to come up with what will fix them. But instead, having the patients to allow the communication or meaning to emerge or not emerge, because that's another piece of it. We often, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of tolerance of ambiguity in open dialogues. So when we're in a difficult clinical situation, we tend to sort of come up with an answer, either mm-hmm. an explanatory framework based on DSM-4 or some psychoanalytic model or some biological model or mm-hmm. something which will help us, um, and then we'll try to frame a solution according to that model. And in open dialogues, there's a real urge to resist that, or real push to resist that urge, um, and you tolerate a lot of ambiguity in the session, trusting that the family or the, the network will allow a meaning to emerge as it's ready. That's right. right. 
That's right. The idea of tolerating uncertainty is tied to the idea of dialogue. And dialogue is, in turn, connected with the idea that solutions that people can really maintain need to emerge organically. And in order for understanding and solutions to emerge, you need to have a dialogue. And a dialogue takes time. So you need to be able to tolerate uncertainty during that process. And tolerating uncertainty isn't just an abstract principle. It's connected with the frequency of meetings. So in open dialogue, the team will meet with a family every day, if need be, in order to reduce people's anxieties and create a sense of safety. And if the family and the person feels safe, then you can tolerate not having immediate definitions and immediate solutions. Then you can engage in dialogue, and through the dialogue, there's a deeper understanding that emerges and therefore more... Not only more, not only solutions that make more sense, but solutions that people can commit to because they have been part of the process that has led to those actions. Yes, um, tricky. So, yeah. So you're saying a few things. One is that they um, will be able to meet very regularly, um, so that anxiety just doesn't have to increase and increase and increase and what am I going to do? I'm not going to see my therapist till next week. But you know that there's a process that you've decided we're going to return to the next day if necessary um, so that that, tol- that ambiguity can be tolerated. You can allow, allow it to be fixed and, or not fixed. Um, you can allow a process to unfold. Yeah, in, in, within the sessions. And also, it also means you don't have to have a big storm at home in between sessions um, because you know you're going back to the, the therapy appointment the next day. I mean, psychoanalysis, you know, is it, similar. It's like an everyday process or several times a week, and it means you don't have to act outside of the session and get into a bad scene, um, and you don't have to um, release that tension some other way. You come back um, and tolerate it and work it through within the session. That's right. Yes. Should we take a break? Yes. Okay. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, welcome back, Mark Hi. Um, and Mary Olson. So, Mary, um, I called you back because I think Open Dialogues is a big deal, and I'm not the only one who thinks it's a big deal. There's a lot of interest in this um, percolating in the States right now. Thank you to you and to Yako Sekolo who came over um, to join you and get some teaching underway. But um, one of the more exciting things to me um, is and to many is that in the studies done in Lapland, um, there was a um, fairly low compared to a control group um, which went through s- traditional um, psychiatric treatment, um, a low um, transition to chronic mental illness, yeah. um, and a low use of antipsychotic medications. Um, and the suggestion is that maybe open dialogues with, you know, we've talked about the theoretical aspects of it, but something special about open dialogues um, enables people with their first episode of psychosis, for example, to bounce off the mental health system back into a functional role within their community and their network. So very different than what traditionally happens here, um, where um, people get labeled or subsumed into the mental health service and we have rising rates of disability, um, very high rates of antipsychotic use. People tend to stay on antipsychotics for a long period of time um, and there's a, a sort of feeling of great worry and hopelessness um, with a first episode of you know severe state or psychosis, mm-hmm. um, which perhaps isn't as justified as it ought to be, uh, as it need be. Um, no, it's more 
maybe it shouldn't, we don't have to feel so hopeless about this. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the Lapland studies, about um, you know, maybe who developed this, and some of the research findings? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, this was the, the, three, the three people that developed this are Yuka Altonen, who is a psychoanalyst, a family therapist, and a psychiatrist, Yako Sekula, who is a clinical psychologist, and Birgitta Alakara, who is a community psychiatrist. And they developed it, as I said, at Karaputis Hospital in northwest Finland. They have 20, 25 years of outcome research, and they also have a comparison study of using open dialogue with standard care. At the I'll just give you the, I won't go through all these studies, but I'll okay. give you the, at the most recent outcome data, yeah. which is at the end of five years, individuals with first episode psychosis treated with open dialogue had the following outcomes. 73% at the end of five years were working or in school. Only 20% were on disability, government disability. Mm-hmm. Only 20% required ongoing use of neuroleptic medications. And between 30 and 40%, let's say 35%, used antipsychotic medication. Okay, hold on. 20% have ongoing... No, say those last two ones again. 20% 20 are require ongoing use of neuroleptic medications at five years. Yeah. Within the whole cohort, roughly 35% used antipsychotic medication. At all. At all. Right. Which is amazing. So comparative figures um, in this country um, or in... Australian cohorts of first episode psychosis, um, something along the lines of you know eighty percent of people um, will transition to chronic use of um, neuroleptics or antipsychotics. Um, I don't know how many of them will be on disability, but I'm sure it's pretty high. Um, and um, and in this cohort. Only 20% needed neuroleptics, and most people, um, 80%, you said, were working and functioning and, and had a good grip on life. So, yes, yeah, 73%. 73%. So, we're working this, or in school, yeah, or job seeking. Right. And in, I think in this study, um, I've got a few issues. You know, we do, obviously, we don't know, we don't know. Um, whether the, the, the people who were collected into this study would be comparable to people who would be collected into an American study or an Australian study because, you know, it, the special nature of the Finnish healthcare system means that you can get people very quickly, yes. uh, in, you know, within 24 hours, and it might be that a, a whole bunch of people in this country um, would not bother um, or um, would be, um, by the time they got the referral or got to treatment, um, maybe everything had been resolved anyway. Um, yes. 
it's, it's it's hard to know. That's right. The the um, the length of untreated, the duration of untreated psychosis in Finland, in Western Lapland, where they do open dialogue, they've gotten it down to three point three months, which is really remarkable. In our country. I think the latest statistic I saw is it tends to be a year where someone is in experiencing psychotic symptoms before they receive treatment. So this is a very nimble mental health system and one that people will call and use readily. That makes a huge difference because there's a lot of research supporting the idea that the longer someone is remains in a psychotic state, the more the more likely they're they're going to have a much more chronic trajectory. Yes, that research is full of holes, though. The people who um, have a longer dura- duration of untreated psychosis um, have um, either better coping strategies, or they're being managed differently in the community, or they're more. Um, or they're more isolative and asocial and non-functional, so they're staying at home. That's and those people tend to have worse prognosis anyway. Anyway, okay, so that's might be, interesting. Yeah, and um, it's not necessarily that, they're, um, that it's the psychosis itself which is the problem. In fact, psychosis itself has very little prognostic value for outcomes um, in, you know, of any kind in terms of functioning or work or... Later, um, or hospitalizations, it's the negative and cognitive symptoms which probably contribute to that being, a, you know, being out of the public eye, so they never come to treatment. Interesting, um, interesting. And it might be that if you have a very quick um, presentation to health services and a very short duration of untreated psychosis, you're coming to treatment, and there, and so you're capturing a greater number of people with a greater proportion of whom will have better outcomes. That's interesting. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, framework. The other point, too, is the whole open dialogue approach is about reducing isolation. Right. Right. It, 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 goes for, it goes straight for functioning and socialization and communication. And the whole aim of it is to re- prevent chronification. So... It also may be that it's addressing those very factors that you're describing mm-hmm. that tend to keep people out of the treatment system longer. Well, either way, these are very, I don't know, I, but I think it's very encouraging and very important because, it, as, as we said, you know, it, people seem to bounce off the mental health system and back into a better functioning level. And um, in the Finnish cohort, at least, a very low number required antipsychotics. And in this country, the default mode, the default process is that people get treated with antipsychotics early and in a sustained fashion, maybe right. for just a year, maybe longer, but not. But in this group, only 20%, no, only 35% ever used antipsychotics. That's right. a remarkable thing. Right. Um, and it's because maybe there's another alternative available, and in this country there's a paucity of alternatives for first-episode psychosis. Well, there's also a figure-ground issue. You know, he, in Finland, the emphasis really is on psychosocial treatment. That really is their centerpiece, and it's not 
at all an anti-medication ideology. Right. It's an integrative approach and and a, and a pragmatic approach, and medication will be used as necessary. So they're not against it. But it's not the first thing that they do. Mm-hmm. And there is a practice of a modest delay in psycho in in prescribing neuroleptic medication and that they try other medications first to see if they can get somebody to sleep, for example, using anti anxiety medications before they turn to neuroleptic medication. Right. And and you feel more confident as a prescriber doing that if you've seen um, 65% of your cohort um, resolve, or if you've seen 80% of your cohort um, resolve and get back into functionality. Right. You know, that, that's, those are kind of the kind of outcomes which we don't often see in this country. And I think what's useful about the contrast is for us to become more reflective about our practices and think that and think about are there alternatives other than this notion that medication is the only real thing you can do that's right that's right so um, yeah that's right so our default that our teaching for many years has been um, you've got to treat with antipsychotics because they're in some way decreasing toxicity which is unfounded um, the toxicity of psychosis you know that psychosis is a dangerous process which damages brains we've got to treat early and outcomes would be much better if you continue the treatment um and um you know and duration of untreated psychosis means that the longer you leave off the worse outcomes are going to be and those are just false you know so um it's brought us to a position where we want to be aggressive with antipsychotics and we don't think too much about other approaches. Right. Um, and the, the whole dialogue, the whole open dialogue approach and attention to alternative approaches to the treatment of extreme states um, really makes us sit up and say, hold on, there are right. alternatives here that other people know about which we have a duty to learn about. Right. So, uh, is it? It is that time again. Come back okay. after a short break. Okay. okay. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart, but I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Okay, welcome back. Mark, Sunny in, and Mary Holson. Hello. Hello. Mary, um, if people wanted to get, find out more information or get in touch with you, what yeah. do they do? They should uh, uh, email me at the... At, here's my email. It's brassworks.millriver, all one word. So brassworks, B-R-A-S-S-W-O-R-K-S dot millriver, M-I-L-L-R-I-V-E-R, at gmail.com. Brassworks.millworks at gmail.com. Okay. Brassworks.millriver. Millriver, sorry. At gmail.com. Okay. Or they can call our number, which is 413-585-1198. Great, thank you. All right, so we've been talking about the fact that Open Dialogues raises our attention to the fact that maybe our standard of practice treating people in extreme states with antipsychotics um, and having um, and treating them in isolation from their families um, and um, with lowered frequency and with a strong medical model where we go into the interview a priori thinking in, in terms of diagnoses and treatment may not be the only way to go about things. Um, that you've studied and have been teaching an alternative approach um, which is um, or complementary approach, um, which um, has, sh- which appears to show improved outcomes um, in terms of functioning, 
um, lowered use of antipsychotics, which is a good thing because they carry a huge burden of um, um, side effects mm-hmm. with them, and that people might be able to bounce off the mental health system back into um, their families and away from isolationism and chronicity. So, and we said, you know, there's some problems with, you know, translating that. So what are you going to do about it? Um, because this is happening in Finland. And um, tell me what plans you've been hatching here. Well, we, Jakob Sekula and I, are working with Doug Zudonis at the University of Massachusetts Medical School to do an open dialogue replication study in the U.S. The, the Finnish example needs to be replicated. It's complicated because we have a very different mental health system here. So part of the challenge is how do you adapt these principles? But I'm very excited about this opportunity to see if we can do a pilot study with, you know, with the involvement and guidance of one of the original developers of this approach mm-hmm. and see if we can duplicate it here in this country. Yes. And I would have to say, you know, that you're working with a very sophisticated researcher. And one of the problems that I feel with the Open Dialogues um, studies which I've written is that they're, um, they're Stats, their control groups are a little vague, and you, it's very hard to draw clear conclusions or feel confident about what you're seeing. It's very hopeful, um, but um, as an important as a starter study. Um, but um, you have the opportunity to really think about um, good control groups and good fo- prospective measurements of what you want to. Um, be looking for within their families and within their prognostic factors. It could be very important research, I think. Yeah, it's. I think it's an important opportunity because, as you say, we're working with a very experienced researcher, uh, Douglas Zadonis, who's done a lot of clinical trials. And I think this is a this is an opportunity opportunity to see what we can do. And as you said, I mean, there are there you know doing clinical research is difficult, and there are always, you know, methodological conundrums, especially when you're talking about the transformation of a whole psychiatric system. Yes. That's, you know, that's very difficult because how do you, how do you randomize that? Mm-hmm. Um, in, any, in any case, no, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for us. Yeah, and um, in other... Um, in other um, streams, um, the I'd say that some of the energy coming from a review of open dialogues and alternative approaches to the treatment of extreme states or psychosis um, include a medication optimization conference, which um, I'm participating in in February in Oregon, where a lot of different disciplines are coming together to, to really review what we don't know about mm-hmm. um, the treatment of first-episode psychosis and ongoing psychosis mm-hmm. and um, try and increase the humility um, a little bit so that mm-hmm. we, because the truth is that 
um, if we're over-reliant on medications, they're just not up to it to, um, to do everything. We need a multiplicity of approaches. And um, we need to wake up to the fact that families are struggling um, and left, often left on the curb um, while, they're, while the person who's identified as having the sickness um, is treated by a healthcare system um, which silences voices and really um, possibly encourages a chronicity. Um, and it's time for you know, families to get more involved and for the healthcare system to say, wow, you know, we don't know everything here. We've got to keep our eyes open to other possibilities and listen. One of the big differences between open dialogue and some of the other family therapy attempts to work with psychosis is that open dialogue takes a very non-blaming stance toward families. Great point. The families are viewed as a resource in terms of being able to overcome a crisis Mm -hmm. rather than blamed. And I think one of the things that has alienated families, of course, is the sense of blame and judgment that family-based approaches have sometimes um, conveyed. And so it's very important, I think, to stress that. I think that's a great point. Um, And one of the reasons why family therapy was maligned so much, and there's such a a lashback, um, you know, to from that, so that um, we're always saying, "Oh no, the family's not at fault. The family's, you know, we don't need to bring in the family, um, and it's gone too far. We need to really have a reappraisal and use the communication and growth and uh, attachments which are present within a family to help nurture people back into recovery and to have their voice." Yeah. So, how do you think we did, Mary? Uh, are we done? <laughs> no, we're still on the air. But are we still so on the air? Much. Yep, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really enjoyed the meeting with you. I think we did a great job. I think I uh, enjoyed it. And uh, it, was a real, could... it was a real pleasure to be here. So, um, uh, brassworks.millriver at gmail.com. Yes. All right. Okay, Good great. With you. Take okay, care. thanks. Okay, bye. bye. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.